Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and joining me is Anthony Tresca. Hello there! This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us today for our discussion of 2020's The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. love it when we do these episodes on the books um me too because there's just so much good horror fiction being written right now and we've had the the like honor of of looking at some of the people that i think are defining um the 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 field right now and grady hendrix is certainly one of those people absolutely he is certainly one of the like hot horror writers right now. I mean, he's just written, like, banger after banger of a horror book. And usually, usually, we can even get more specific horror comedies. Most of his are are horror comedies, which we both love. Absolutely. And, and I think that as difficult as it is to create a horror comedy film, I would argue that it's probably exponentially harder to to do it in novel form um in part because i think comedy writing um is a really hard medium and and one of the things that that people often like about comedies right is that characters are not always um entirely likable right like you're okay with them getting in in these scrapes and having to dig themselves out and that's hard to sometimes sustain um in a novel and so hendrix has had to find really creative ways to still have that comedic element um but but still create characters that we like and not rely just on visual gags right which is where a lot of comedy film ends up um getting its its sorts of humor and i do have to say hendrix has kind of like and not he can't obviously rely on visual gags but he has done something that is very classic in like horror comedies in which he's like taken a really specific niche interest or like things like his first novel horror store it's like horror in this ikea place so he's doing really high concept things and then setting a horror story within this high concept framework um and so like horror story he does that there um like with uh, we sold our souls one of his other books it's a uh, set during rock and roll times it's uh, all about these rock these hard, heavy rock, uh, metal rock and roll people, and it's a horror story set within that framework. Best Friend Exorcist set during, uh, basically just like, I mean, you know, during an exorcist and all the 80s movies. And tropes. a slumber party, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then with this book, it's no different. It's set in the 90s in the South, something that Hendrix himself is, he, he talks about, he's pretty familiar with. And, uh, it's about, as he mentions in his prologue, basically Southern women hit, and kind of, it, this is his ode to his mom in a lot of ways. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and I, um, in a second, when we jump a little bit more fully in, I want to read that 
that line that he writes in his um, introduction, which where he's saying that this is, is for his mom. But but I, I wanted to, to comment on something really insightful that you said about um, Hendrix's ability to, to take these familiar frameworks, right? That's where the comedy comes in, um, is that he takes over the top situations right like how ridiculous is it to have um you know a horror set in an ikea well it's really ridiculous until you think about one time when you got lost in ikea right <laughs> you couldn't find your way out yeah and um, you thought it, you were all you were gonna die in ikea having to like fend like fend for yourself <laughs> exactly i mean i had a reoccurring nightmare when i was really little um that i was blind and lost in a grocery store. And when I would open my eyes, that's when I would wake up, right? So that's what, that's where the blind part came in. But like there is there these anxieties that he's addressing are, are very tangible and felt. So he manages to take very familiar stories um, and transform them into things that are still terrifying but but funny. And I would argue that the one of the reasons he's able to do it is because um, he he's a true scholar of horror, right? I mean, he, he produced the book Paperbacks from Hell, where he said, hey, we can't ignore these terrible pulp fiction novels because they are they are an entire movement. Um, he had a, on his blog, he spent a year rereading all of Stephen King um, and talking about it. Like, this is a man who knows his stuff. And I, I think that when you and I talk about the horror writers that we like and appreciate the most... They're the ones that are really invested in the genre, right? They're not just like writing and just saying like, yeah, I don't really read it, but I write, right? Like they are invested in, in the genre in a really yeah. deep way. They're writing, they're writing horror because that's the genre that they actually like rather than we're writing horror because there's a lot of money in horror or we're writing horror because it's, it's pretty easy. All you have to do is just like follow the formula and then you can produce a bang and horror film a exactly film, book etc exactly blumhouse they're not and don't get me wrong <laughs> i like me good blumhouse films sometimes, but uh, sometimes they hit really they're really good, i mean but sometimes they're really terrible yeah <laughs> and and i i really appreciate um hendrix sort of like awareness and and we talked about this with tremblay as well right like you can't write a, a vampire story without being aware of all the other vampire stories. Like, you have yeah. to build that in at this point, right? Because otherwise it's going to just feel like you didn't do your research. Instead, um, I, the entire time I was reading um, Southern Guide, I just, I felt like he was so aware of, of what the vampire narrative looked like that he mm -hmm. was able to offer some something insightful and new. I, I agree. And I, I think the comparison to Paul Tremblay is really apt. Because I think that Hendrix and Tremblay are basically operating, I mean, they're two sides of the same coin, I think. They are taking these really old frameworks that and like these tropes that we know within the horror genre and use, and then, whereas Tremblay is then deconstructing it from, frankly, more of a like nihilist kind of perspective. It's a, it's, they're pretty, it's usually to be like, yeah, uh, even once once you deconstruct it, it doesn't get better. It get it right. only gets worse. Like we we only look worse once we deconstruct everything. Exactly. Whereas I think Hendrix is a bit more optimistic through his deconstructions. He's a little less of a nihilist, and so he that is why he is 
his books come out to be more more of just straight up comedies uh, like yes. comedy horrors rather than just horror horror like what I think Tremblay writes because I mean his books do have some elements of comedy in them as well but they're mostly comic relief from the from... existential dread that he's creating right we're laughing to, to take a break from the screaming no I think I think you're right and we've talked about this before that I I'm sure there is, and I probably even gave an example one time, but the the vast majority of of horror comedy is going to need to be affirmative, right? Uh, Rather than disaffirmative because of what comedy does, right? And because of how comedy is constructed. And and certainly Hendrix is is aware and is conscious of the fact that, you know, there are problems with our systems of consumerism, be that um, stores or be that music, be that souls um but he also at the end of the day you realize that you know um people have the potential to be inherently good right that that there is something redeemable in us as humans even if there's maybe not in in our society yeah because he what and i think what we'll get to more specifically in some of the ways that it succeeds and some of the ways that it doesn't always succeed within the this novel specifically, um, at least there is there's always an attempt also at some broader societal critiques as well. Before it ultimately does have to end on a like pretty positive note, um, but yeah, I think this book. Is, I showing my hand a little bit. I really like this book a lot. I, oh, I do I too. Think, I think this is probably my favorite by Hendrix, which is why I wanted to talk about it first because I wanted to start by like just gushing. Yeah. So I was thinking about about this and and where I fell and and I won't I won't lie. I have a soft spot, an incredible soft spot in my heart for horror store because of I I think that the form is so intriguing, the form of the book where it, you know, it appears like a, an IKEA catalog. Um and yeah. also as as somebody who who does a lot of stuff with placelessness of his books, that one's the most like easy to to talk about in terms of placelessness um but i i agree with you that i think that this is his most sophisticated book um and i i think that it is it's when i finished reading this book it made me remember or it made me think again on why i think horror is so important like like this book encapsulated what horror has the potential to do which is to take a fantastical um concept and to use it as a lens in which we can examine very the small moments in our lives that define us that is high praise you are starting you are setting the bar very high i am (laughs) well and it's funny because again i'm not sure that it was it definitely wasn't the funnest read of his for me, but but I'm not sure it should have been, right? Like, I think that yeah. the, this book goes a little bit darker and deeper. Um, so I want to read the, the part that he writes in his author's note because I think I think this is um, exactly where, where he begins to build his sort of deeper thoughts. Yeah. So he says... Um, like you said, he said when he was a kid, he didn't take his mom seriously um, because they all the, the housewives just sort of seemed like a bunch of lightweights. That's his phrase. Um, he didn't realize how many things they were dealing with that he was totally unaware of. 
And then he said, they took the hits so we could skate by obliviously. Because that's the deal. As a parent, you endure pain so your children don't have to. And then in his next paragraph, he says, this is also a book about vampires. But the the last paragraph of the author's note, um, or the last full paragraph, is where I think he he articulates an idea that that I think is really rather profound. So he says, because vampires are the original serial killers, stripped of everything that makes us human, they have no friends, no family, no roots, no children. All they have is hunger. They eat and eat, but they're never full. With this book, I wanted to pit a man freed from all responsibilities but his appetites against women whose lives are shaped by their endless responsibilities. I wanted to pit Dracula against my mom. As you'll see, it's not a fair fight. Yeah. You know, one of the few times that I think an author's note at the beginning is like been totally justified and necessary for shaping the, the book, the experience of reading the book. Absolutely. Because you're right. A lot of times author's notes are sort of self-indulgent um, or mm-hmm. they it's like all it's like they got all of their brilliance out on uh, into their novel. And now they're just like, I had so many great ideas and I want to thank people. And it's like, where where's your thoughts? But this you could tell that like he he needed to frame this book in a very specific way. And, and I think you're right that having read that author's note first really made this novel richer for me. Yeah, because I, I, I do, I worry that if people don't read the the author's note, they might just dismiss some of the character, like the, the women who are in this book club as being like, oh, they're just so, they're so vapid. They don't have any, like, um, why don't they have more agency? Why don't they just do more? And I think Hendrix probably anticipated that. He was like, well, I can't assume that everyone is automatically going to make the same connection that I did many, many years later down after with much perspective and thinking about this issue a lot. So he's like, I'm just going to tell people this is where I'm starting from so that then they kind of know that going in, which I think is incredibly important. And I think it's important, too, because, you know, Hendrix is a male writer whose whose story is about a group of women that, you know, these are not these are not Buffy, the vampire slayer um, and crew. These are, are the women that that almost accidentally defeat the vampire, right? Like, I mean, they had a plan, but boy, did it, like, not work out as as no. they anticipated. Um, and I think you're right that, that without reading that introduction, it would be easy to, to dismiss these women as trivial because that's essentially what Hendrix is saying, is that all of us, right, are, are defined by the trivial elements in our lives, right? Almost none of us are have devoted our lives to a, a major major battle, right? There, we can count the people aloud um, who, who we could define as doing that. Um, and most of us are not the Mother Teresas and the Gandhis, right? We are the, the people that get consumed by needing to sort the recycling. Um, and and that, that, I think, is actually one of the more brilliant elements of this, of this novel, um, is that we can never know for sure until the very end whether or not these women are going to succeed because there's no good reason that they should. Yeah, they're, they are absolutely not trained for this. Oftentimes, like, horror... T- Ecortex in order to like up the stakes or like and like make it the combat more real and more exciting or like these are people top of their field they're so badass they're gonna come in and like be able to take it down and go toe to toe with these incredibly powerful creatures and this novel is like nope here's your mom and your mom armed with like only things that are in their 
Did your mom's domestic owls are going to try to take down a dark, brooding, intense vampire who lives down the street. Yeah, and and I think that one of the things that worked really well for me in this book, but it surprised me that I, I liked it, was how how long in terms of the passage of time in the narrative this book spans because again the other thing that books like this usually do right is they give us someone that is equipped and trained or or able to somehow find an an arsenal and everything happens in like a two or three month period but but this book makes it clear that like you can be battling um the evil dark brooding forces down the street but you still have to make lunch for your kids and at the end yeah. of the day, you only have 24 hours. I agree. I, I think that that is, that is something that's so interesting about this, about the book, is just, like, the longevity of it. And I think it really just, like, shows... I mean, I think that's obviously included in there to just show how much women during this... I mean, during this time... I say during this time, like, the 90s wasn't that. <laughs> was, like, such a long time ago, which I guess is kind of the point he wants to, like, he's trying to argue. It's, like, there there are still so all of these, like, responsibilities that get shoved onto women, um, even just, like, 30 years ago. And it's, I, yeah, I think it's important. I think it's important that this book takes over such a long period of time because she doesn't have the luxury of being able to just, like, drop everything and go take care of this in one fail swoop, like on a weekend. Because she, exactly. she has stuff to do. She has commitments. She has, she has exactly. kids to deal with on the weekend. Exactly. And for me, the verisimilitude of, of that um, is made very real by 2020, right? Um, you know, at the start of the pandemic, everyone was like, yes, you know, let's get down to business and defeat the virus. You know, we can do this. And then like two months in, right? Not even like, not even months of any real substance in, people were like, eh, let's just give up and lay down, right? And and that's that's how we respond, right? There's a reason that, that fight or flight is, is a very short time frame, right? You either fight or flight, and then you enter stasis. We can't perpetually exist in a fight or flight stage. Um, and, and this novel reveals that, right? Reveals how we can be consumed by dread, but unable to do anything about it. Which is terrifying. That's what it's, I mean, it's scary, but again, like you said, has only the, the reality of it has only been further articulated and confirmed by this existential nightmare that we've all lived through, which is 2020. <laughs> exactly. And so I think anyone who, who has a, a problem with, with the female characters um, sort of lack of agency uh, primarily the main character Patricia right and just how long it takes her to go through things um, and to, to work things out I, I think that they're they're forgetting um, that that we craft narratives um, to that are that feel realistic but in reality are very far from from how we would actually react And this novel is doing the opposite which I think is where some of the comedy comes in right because you're like really you're just gonna go to another book club when you know you have a vampire living down the street or like really you know he's a vampire but you still are gonna invite him in because your manners um like prevent you from doing otherwise but it's like yeah that's that's actually what we would do because we are all sort of ridiculous creatures and i think what you just hit on the the issue of of manners is something that is is an, a theme that is 
really rang true to me, like, all of the, like, Southern hospitality, the, like, unwritten rules of Southern hospitality, and the extent to which they have power. Like, these society, these norms that we've created, the societal norms, have such enormous power, and I think we often like to pretend that they don't, just, and, like, we're, we're, we really are in control, we're doing this because we want to, not because of that they are norms, but whether or not... Whether or not who have, whether or not we're choosing to do them or we're just doing them because they're in place, the norms are still being performed. You're absolutely correct, uh, and and I think that you know, little things, right? Like why do we patiently wait in a line, and why do we get upset when someone cuts in front of us, right? Like because they're not following the the rules that we have established, and so a lot of this book to go back to what. Hendrick said is about this idea of you know what do we how can people who have to abide by the rules even when it will destroy them combat someone who can't abide the rules even if not following them will destroy him right so it's really the sort of like battle of like do the rules hurt or harm you and the answer is yes right because yeah. as Hendrick shows um, it doesn't matter whether you abdicate uh, your role in society or whether you cling to it either way you're you're working with a broken framework and and for me that really comes out with the men um and with the husbands yeah the, uh, the men in general for sure because they're just like so so dismissive of of everything immediately because it would disrupt the status quo which would if the status quo is disrupted then they're unquestioning superiority and power and control the control that they're able to and freedom that they're allowed because the women do all the work in the house uh would be challenged and that is that, that can't happen the one area in which i i would have maybe appreciated a little bit more development was was if there had been one marriage that had been a little more functional um the the one relationship that's depicted as as a, as perhaps the most loving is the one between uh, Kitty and her husband Horse, um, but even in that case, right, um, we have you know he's he's selling off parts of their land and their heritage, um, kind of without her consent, right, and and we we see in the character of Horse characters that felt for me very reminiscent of of the characters in like Faulkner's work right the sort of like um we we are dead we just don't know it yet um you know our 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 family has decayed we just haven't accepted it um and that's that's the healthiest relationship right we have Grace who's who's actually in a a physically uh, abusive relationship with her husband um Slick husband seems very dismissive and of course Patricia's husband is just literally the worst um I think it would have been interesting to see how a a character would have participated in in all of this or not and, participated or not participated, right? Um, if if they had had the support of the husband in their life, mm-hmm. I think that would have been interesting. Uh, it, it would have perhaps it would have led to I think a bit more of a even more nuanced look at this. Uh, because it would it does further complicate things because then that is you're having to unpack the societal norm and you're also having to show like here is what it looks like when that societal norm is usurped and like it just adds it would have added another layer of commentary which i think would have been interesting 
and I, I, I genuinely do think the book would have been made. I don't know if better or better or worse feels like the wrong way to talk about it, but it would have been another wrinkle, at least another interesting thing to discuss. That I, I, I agree. I kind of wish she had as well. Yeah, and and I don't know. You know, you and I have talked before about like we've been able to make rather simple solutions and for for various texts of like here if they had just done this it would have fixed it i'm not sure how he would have wove that in right certainly it would have probably required the addition of of more pages of a narrative um but yeah i think you're right that it just would have added another wrinkle to a, a really textured text um and and i think that would have added that that one sort of note that's missing and that you know um like okay so i understand what to do if my children are threatened and i understand what to do if i'm forced to fight because the the one person in my life who's supposed to be there for me is not but like what decision would i make if it's not my children being immediately threatened and i do have a home that is is not slightly toxic Right. Like, would I still participate if my status quo is good um, and not broken? Would I would I ever be willing to to really take that risk? And I just I think that that would have been an interesting sort of question to ask. And we get that a little bit with the character of Grace, but she's not really having to decide if she wants to keep her status quo. She's having to decide if she's willing to to risk everything in a, in a way that the other women aren't because they're at least not being physically abused. Yeah, I. I agree, and I think it would have been interesting to add that commentary along with, like, um, along with the commentary that they were doing about race in in, in this novel, because isn't that the whole, that's, like, the whole issue of why we're still having to fight battles for racial issues, it's because people in power are not willing to change the status quo or give up their their perceived privileges um and like in order to change things for the better exactly because they're like these aren't privileges this is just this is my right these are these are not things that i have been unfairly given uh this is this is what i deserve exactly. so i mean like it would have been more it would have added another layer to the conversation that is already going on in his book about race and it you know, I, I looked at some of the reviews on the book on Goodreads, um, and you and I talked about this a little bit before the recording. One of the one of the reasons I don't think that if I become a novelist, I'll ever be able to read the reviews that people write is, is I if I get this frustrated about people missing the points of other people's work, I can't imagine how, how frustrating I would find it when people miss um, the point in my own. Because a lot of people had a problem with with Hendrix's depiction of of race and particularly his inclusion of Mrs. Green. So I think that there is both um, an incredible step that Hendrix makes properly when it comes to race in this text. And I do think that there is a bit of a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. I do. I do. Those reviews you're talking about from Goodread where people just entirely seem to miss the point of the inclusion of race at all in this narrative was incredibly frustrating to hear you it was about you we we just went through and we read a bunch of those and and so the big complaint was right people said i don't understand 
or I don't feel like this book is is being progressive enough because it's stupid or doesn't make sense or whatever word they wanted to use that um, that black characters in this novel only are either unnamed servers, Mrs. Green, um, or cannon fodder for the vampire. And and I will agree that that we need to talk a little bit more about the Mrs. Green character, but the whole point of of the the children the black children being uh the victims of the vampire is not just like the cliche you know uh the black characters die first um it's it's because who's going to care about these children and the answer that the that the novel reveals very explicitly is no one that isn't part of that community yeah hendrix talks about how he had the vampire put prey upon the black children and adults as he assumes that the children of working class african-american parents aren't valued um which is just like i mean i don't know how much more explicit you can get it's like that and he's not saying that is a good thing i think if you i don't think you can read this well i guess you can because (laughs) we did read all of those goodreads comments where people did clearly seem to have read it and clearly seem to have missed the point entirely but I, I, when I read it, I, I was like, oh, it's very clear that the reason the vampire is choosing to do this is because he's preying on our, our societal, the places where there are cracks in our societal norms. Like, a societal norm is definitely racism in America, and it's just kind of, it's kind of deeply ingrained within our entire culture, our entire way of being, and he, and Hendrix is like, yeah, and what if someone was just, like, really willing to exploit that? What if someone didn't care about the rules or the consequences and was just like, yep, uh, that is a problem, and uh, I'm not going to fix it. In fact, uh, I'm just going to, like, keep making that problem worse. I think anyone who who has a problem with that because they assume that it's, you know, Hendrix not, not creating an, a, a narrative that is authentic or creating something that is not, quote, progressive... Uh, needs to read Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy, uh, which is looking at um, our very problematic justice system in the United States. Um, And, you know, like, and and just the sheer number of stories where someone, as you said, fell in the cracks and nobody thought to look twice um, because of their socioeconomic status and the color of their skin. Yeah, I was like, if you want to talk about, like, I mean, all you have to do is just, like, look at all of the the people who have, all of the black people in America who are killed every day, and it doesn't matter. Exactly. In inner cities, right, at the hands of police officers, I mean, through the, through the fail, the failty of the medical system, there are so many places in which we just, America has seemed pretty content to just, like, let black people die in order to like let everything keep the status quo moving along chugging along at a at a heavy pace and i think hendrix is drawing attention to that and being like this is not sustainable and it's also horrible and what's to me even more insidious right so you said um you know letting black people die to further the status quo i think a good majority of people don't even know that it's happening right like it, that's it's, that's the problem and that's why it's able to 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 happen it's through exactly. that either willful ignorance 
or just totally blind ignorance. And either way, it doesn't really matter if it's willfully you are ignorant or blind because the result is the same. The result is the same and somewhere along the way made a decision that blindness was going to happen. And and I think that's where I think actually Hendrick's book really shines is that um, so much of the book, the, the sort of narrative tension is why should Patricia step up, right? Like, why should she, quote, bother when the only, quote, only people dying are people that aren't hers? Um, and, and so much of this book really is on this idea of at what point are we forced to acknowledge that our problem is my problem? Right. And 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 unfortunately, and I think this is where Hendrix does a, a terrific job of character development. Unfortunately, we realize that Patricia is not even close to being a hero. Right. Like she waits until her her daughter is being molested. Um, and that's when she decides she's going to do something about it. And And by the end, I think she's doing something because she realizes that she can't she can't abide in the system anymore but even with her killing the vampire even with all of them killing the vampire it's still almost too little too late like so what like you did the bare minimum of what you were expected to do you killed the monster like good for you what do you want a cookie um and and i feel like that's one of the things that this book does is that it somehow doesn't feel very triumphant at the end because that's what they should have done years before anyone anyone not even just her specifically it's just like there are so many we're led to believe that this has been happening for so long like we are not led to believe we are told explicitly that this has been happening for centuries and no one else has done this so it's just like i mean yeah it's incredibly frustrating And a lot of heroes' journeys are, we see the hero is going to do something extraordinary, right? Like something that's beyond the bounds of of comprehension, right? Frodo is going to leave the Shire, and he's going to go on this journey that no hobbit has ever gone on. He's going to do these things that that are beyond the realm of of the imaginable. But Hendrix shows us um, a story in which our characters, who, who really can't entirely be labeled as heroes, like, by the end all they've done is what they should have done. They they took control and they acknowledged that they played a role in the lives of others. Um, Yeah. And that's haunting. The real, I think, and I think the real scary part is at the end, uh, is that even though they have defeated the singular monster, is that it still isn't going to like, it still doesn't fix a lot of the problems that are really present in the novel, which is like inter- like misogyny, racism, that are present in not only the microcosms of and the individual household, each individual household, but those households are a microcosm of the larger society. It's, it's still present there. People still don't care that all of these black children and black people in general die in this. People still aren't, don't care about the struggles that these women are facing in their everyday lives. It's just now this this one bad parasite who is really exploiting the system is gone, but the system itself is still broken. 
Exactly. And the fact that at the end of the novel, Patricia, you know, has divorced her husband. Um, it's, it's not a very triumphant feeling conclusion, right? Like he no. should have been like, you know what? I made a mistake. I realized that I was wrong. Um, you know, I will, you know, worship you until the day you die. Like, I mean, there's none of that. You're right. You're absolutely correct that, that one of the ways in which this novel, I think is, is a more rich text than Hendrix's other books is that it doesn't end on that sort of like, um, wink iris effect of looney tune uh comics that that some of his other ones do where he's just trying to end it on that comedic note um uh-huh. this one doesn't doesn't really feel the need to to do that no i do i do think that that despite the rather sophisticated uh way in which hendrix reminds us of of who in our society are going to always be victims i i do think that his mrs green character um, you know, the fact that she's called Mrs. Green uh, throughout the, the story um, instead of by her first name. I, I think that that we could have seen a little bit more developed of a character. She really serves the purpose of, of Harbinger, um, you know, like announcing there there is a monster. You need to be aware of the monster. Um, and then conscience, right? Like um, you have done wrong. You need to fix it. And I don't know, again, how, how he would fix that because certainly we don't want to just have her be like the comedic sidekick character because that would be super problematic too. Um, but, but there is a way in which this book, you know, you talked about the fact that like, that there's a feeling that it's set a long time ago, even though it's only set in the nineties. And, and I think some of it is, is that there's a, a weird way in which it's, this book is being very clearly dated to not have been that long ago. Um, but it also feels a little bit, um, ambivalent about when it's set, right? Like, it, and, and I realize that I don't, I didn't grow up in, um, genteel Southern society. And I realize that, that they are a little bit more, um, locked into the past than than other well, cultures uh, particularly because of like their wealth right I mean, yes the wealth allows them the privilege well privilege and it's a privilege and a curse yes. that they are that they haven't had to advance as much with the times and again there, there's a very sort of faulkner feel to it right i mean there, there's a reason that we have an entire subgenre called southern gothic literature right that is about the moldering um plantations instead of the moldering castles um but i i do think that at times um this the story felt a little bit too trapped in in the sort of like 1950s 1960s nostalgic moment even if it was actually set in the 90s that i think they he could have he could have reminded us a little bit more that that you know this is supposed to be um in the 90s when when women are sort of having yet another uh sort of wave of, of feminism um i think there could have been some ways that he could have, have created that tension a little bit more perhaps although i think it is a, it is also kind of interesting that like that maybe it just missed this group of women in this like i mean they are he he establishes that they're living pretty like sheltered lives um, yeah up until this point that you know perhaps they've never needed to like they've never had to think critically about like feminist theory or like yeah or or any or like what their role in society is because they're not they haven't had to it's just like a it's one of those privileges that perhaps isn't a privilege that that's very true and and it's certainly very far removed from from my upbringing right like where i had two working parents and i'm 
would I don't you know even when I was really little had two working parents so so yeah I think you're right that there is a way in which this is sort of revealing that maybe some of the problem is when um when you are privileged and or cursed to be trapped in this like sort of amber of uh, you know where things are the same as they've always been um maybe it's not so surprising that that systemic racism is still about where it was in the 50s I mean yeah it's like it, I think it just articulates that class is the biggest, is probably one of the bigger dividers rather than any other type of, like, category that you want to, like, throw on it, whether that is gender, race, et cetera, et cetera, any of those categories. It's like class is still fundamentally the thing that, like, will shape a lot of your other opinions. Yes. If you are rich, you probably don't have not had to, and you've been rich your entire life, you probably have not had to think as critically about these other issues because straight up they're just not affecting you. Yes. Like, it doesn't really matter. You, you you may be you may be a woman, but you haven't had to face a lot of the same struggles that like working class women have, et cetera, et cetera. It's different struggles for sure, but it is just that mm-hmm. it's different. <laughs> no, that's a very good point. Which is which is why again I just I find that really fascinating. Pitting these very like very privileged people who have benefited from the status quo and the system in place and then facing them against this person who feeds off of the failures of the status quo and i think that's one of the successes of this book is that they they a lot of horror comedy i feel like suffer like make has to make the villain character comical and like in order to like make the whole book be funny as a whole they're like oh i don't want it to be too much of a downer so we got to make light of this villain I don't think that Hendrix ever downplays the severity and like the just how much of an absolute monster James Harris is. He is, he's bad, he's a bad bloke the entire time and he's a huge menace. And what's interesting is that in in removing the, the comedy that, that that character could be, right? This is not um, Kiefer Sutherland of Lost Boys, right? Where you, like, can't help but chuckle just a smidge um, every time you see his bleach blonde hair. Um, this, I think one of the things that I, I think that Hendrix does such a good job on is that James Harris, you're right, he's such a bad creature, but he truly... I don't know, but 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 the things that we see him do, the vast majority of things that he does are banal, right? Like he comes over for dinner and eats ice cream. Um, and he, you know, is very genuine when he thanks Patricia for helping him create a bank account. Um, and, and so there's this really interesting way in which he is the most terrifying monster ever because, like you said, he's not constantly going, wahaha, remember how evil I am. He just is. Yes. Yeah, he is. I, and I also don't think that, I mean, I, based on the novel itself, Hendrix is like, yeah, James is the literal monster, but he's only, a, he's a monster and able, and only able to be as monstrous as he is because of the failures of this world that we've created, the societal norms, the status quo, everyone's total inability to, like, take control of the situation because of how much the system has failed at this point already. Yes. And it's allowing him to get away with everything. We mentioned this in the our episode on, on the 1973 Black Christmas, um, where we made this distinction. Um, James Harris is the monster 
but he's not the villain. Uh, and, and he's not the person, you know, I mean, really, like, I, I despised the husband. I didn't really despise James Harris, right? I, I thought he had to be stopped because, you know, he was preying upon children. But, like, that I, but I honestly wanted the husband to, you know, die. Um, so, like, yeah, there's, there, this book does such a good job of, of making that clear. And, and I think what's interesting and then could be almost the, the sort of like start of a, of a sequel, not that I, I want Hendrix to write one, but, but would be this idea of um, like what happens when we get distracted by the monster instead of focusing on the villain. Like, I think he could have taken that theme even a step further. I think he's starting to get there by the end, right? Because we realize that, like, um, Patricia has been so focused on on the monster that she hasn't noticed for the fact the domestic abuse that's happening with her closest friend, Grace. Um, and, or, you know, the, the rape scene um, with, with Slick, which, um, you know, makes a, a very... Um, something that that again is is very real um and and ties it into the fantastical like yeah and i think that that is that theme of like do you getting getting distracted by the monster but not actually understanding where the true villain is is only further articulated by like the current administration that hendrix was writing this under uh trump is obviously a monster who is exploiting and preying upon the failures of the status quo, but he's only able to do that because the real villain is these biases and these prejudices that are baked in to the current system and status quo. And so, I mean, even though uh, we're recording this before Trump has officially left office, but even though hope, hopefully by the time you are listening to this, he is he is gone. This the real villain is not. The real villain is all of the the prejudices and the biases and these these horrible the horrible hatred that he's tapped into. So, I mean, even though Hendrix may not have written that those parallels directly, or he may not have like consciously been thinking about it, it's hard for me to read this book with in in this time period without thinking about that and drawing those parallels. It uh, it really just it struck a vein with me. Ha ha ha. If you um, are using our podcast to, to think about what to read next, we are going to encourage you to start reading um, because it's a Stephen King book. So it's going to take some time to get through as it is not short. Uh, Stephen King's The Shining, because we will have a future episode where we're going to look at the shinings um, and sort of that that like moment of intersection. But our next episode that will be coming to you in just a couple of weeks is on uh, 2013's remake of Evil Dead. So get excited about that. And in the meantime, be sure to follow us on social media, all of which are included in the description. And give us a like wherever you get your podcast and be sure to write a review on there. Those really help. And share us with your friends. I'm, we hope you got them. And since you have them, you might as well talk about this. That's right. Them. If you can't take <laughs> advantage of your friends, what's the point? Exactly. Thanks for listening. Have a good day. Bye-bye.